Take your Bibles, if you would, and turn to the book of Ezra, chapter 6. Ezra, chapter 6. Then Darius, the king, made a decree, and search was made in Babylonia, in the house of the archives where the documents were stored, and in Ekbatana, the citadel that is in the province of Media, a scroll was found on which this was written, a record. In the first year of Cyrus the king, Cyrus the king issued a decree concerning the house of God in Jerusalem. Let the house be rebuilt, the place where sacrifices were offered, and let its foundations be retained. Its height shall be 60 cubits and its breadth 60 cubits, with three layers of great stones and one layer of timber. Let the cost be paid from the royal treasury, and also let the gold and silver vessels of the house of God, which Nebuchadnezzar took out of the temple that is in Jerusalem and brought to Babylon, be restored and brought back to the temple that is in Jerusalem, each to its place. You shall put them in the house of God. Now therefore, Tatanai, governor of the providence beyond the river, Shethar Bozani, and your associates, the governors who are in the providence beyond the river, keep away. Let the work on this house of God alone. Let the governor of the Jews and the elders of the Jews rebuild this house of God on its site. Moreover, I make a decree regarding what you shall do for these elders of the Jews for the rebuilding of the house of God. The cost is to be paid to these men in full and without delay from the royal revenue, the tribute of the providence from beyond the river. And whatever is needed, bulls, rams, or sheep, or burnt offerings to the God of heaven, wheat, salt, wine, or oil, as the priests at Jerusalem require, let that be given to them day by day without fail, that they may offer pleasing sacrifices to the God of heaven and pray for the life of the king and his sons. Also I make a decree that if anyone alters this edict, a beam shall be pulled out of his house, and he shall be impaled on it and his house shall be made a dunghill. May the God who has caused his name to dwell there overthrow any king or people who shall put out a hand to alter this or to destroy the house of God that is in Jerusalem. I, Darius, make a decree. Let it be done with diligence. Then according to the word sent by Darius the king, Tatanai, the governor of the providence beyond the river, Shethar Bozani and their associates did with all diligence what Darius the king ordered, and the elders of the Jews built and prospered through the prophesying of Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the son of Edo. They finished their building by decree of God of Israel and by the decrees of Cyrus and Darius and Artaxerxes king of Persia. And this house was finished on the third day of the month of Adar in the sixth year of the reign of Darius the king. And the people of Israel, the priests and the Levites and the rest of the returned exiles celebrated the dedication of this house of God with joy. They offered the dedication of this house of God, 100 bulls, 200 rams, 400 lambs, and a sin offering for all Israel, 12 male goats according to the number of the tribes of Israel. And they set the priests in their divisions and the Levites in their divisions for the service of God at Jerusalem as is written in the book of Moses. On the 14th day of the first month, the returned exiles kept the Passover, for the priests and the Levites had purified themselves together. All of them were clean. So they slaughtered 
the Passover lamb for all the returned exiles, for their fellow priests, and for themselves. It was eaten by the people of Israel who had returned from exile, and also by everyone who had joined them and separated himself from the uncleanness of the peoples of the land to worship the Lord, the God of Israel. And they kept the feast of unleavened bread seven days with joy, for the Lord had made them joyful, and he had turned the heart of the king of Assyria to them, so that he aided them in the work of the house of God, the God of Israel. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. You may be seated. Let's pray. Oh Lord, how encouraging your word is, and God, how much we look forward to, to coming to hear from you this morning. And so we pray that you would speak. Speak in a way, God, that, that we would hear. Even, Lord, that the dead would hear and be raised to new life in you. We thank you, O oh God, and pray these things in your name. Amen. Well, we come this morning to Ezra 6, which is the end of this section. So let me just sort of recap uh, where we've been so far so you can sort of make sense of what it is that I, I read this morning as we're, we're coming sort of in the middle of everything. But Ezra chapter 1 and 2, we see that God frees a remnant of his people from exile in Babylon. And under Cyrus, the king of Persia, sends them back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. And then in Ezra chapter 3, the exiles return and they, they because the temple is not built yet, they first of all build the altar of God and it says they did it in its place in chapter 3 verse 3. In other words, they built it as God prescribed in the way that it was to be and they began to sacrifice offerings to the Lord and they kept the feast of booths. They also, in addition to that, raised money and began to purchase supplies to build the temple. And they laid the foundation of the temple. And this is that passage that you may know of where when the temple foundation was laid, the people rejoiced, except for the older people who had seen the old temple. And they saw how tiny and small this temple was, and they wept. And it says that the rejoicing and the weeping were so loud that it was heard from far away, and you couldn't always distinguish the two. Well, even though the foundation was laid and the work was underway, in chapter 4 we see quickly that there was opposition. That the local people who were uh, really the result of intermarriage between the Jews that were left there when Nebuchadnezzar uh, destroyed Jerusalem and uh, destroyed the temple, and the people that Nebuchadnezzar imported into that area to intermarry with those Jews, uh, those people... Uh, did not necessarily worship the Lord as uh, he prescribed. And lest you think I'm making that up, if you look at chapter 6, verse 21, as it talks about the Passover and who took the Passover later, um, it says at the end of that verse, everyone who has joined them, right? This is who took the Passover. Everyone who had joined them and separated himself from the uncleanness of the peoples of the land. And so these local people had come to these exiles and said, we want to help you build the temple. We want to join you in the work. And they said no, because they knew there was a sense that they wouldn't have to compromise. And so they stood firm. Unlike their fathers of years ago that had intermixed and intermingled with the people of the land and had made themselves unholy, these exiles were holy. They were separate from those that were seeking to profane the name of God. 
And so these local people then took an all-out affront against the exiles, and they began to oppose them and to discourage them and to hire people to thwart their purposes and even to bring political pressure against them. And so we see at the end of chapter 4, verse 24, then the work of the house of God that is in Jerusalem stopped. Sort of a low point in the first chapters of Ezra. Well, what we don't see in the text, but is there, is that there's a 16-year gap between the end of chapter 4 and the beginning of chapter 5. And God's people forgot about the work of the temple. They began to turn their focus inward upon themselves, and they began to build houses. And not just houses, but nice houses. And they began to put all their energies and their efforts in their own lives and, and for their own selves. But then something happens in Ezra chapter 5. And you would hope that it would be that God's people recognized their sins and they repented and they turned to the Lord and they said, God, forgive us. We cry out to you for we have sinned. But that's not what happened. They continued to build their houses and to forget what God had sent them to Jerusalem to do. But God is faithful, brothers and sisters. And in Ezra chapter 5, verse 1, God acts. God acts to redeem, to, to save his people by sending two prophets, Haggai and Zechariah, to the people to speak the word of God. First of all, to rebuke them in their sins and call them to repentance. And that's what we saw in Haggai as he called them to turn from their own labors and to return to the work that the Lord had given to them. Praise God, though, the people listened. They heard the word of the Lord and they saw their own sin and they turned and they repented of that. And so um, they began to do the work. But God continued to encourage them through the word and uh, also get, um, sharing with them the future promises that what he was going to do. And so as a result, as we see in verse 2 of chapter 5, that the leaders of the exiles began to rebuild the house of God. And at the end of that verse, it says the prophets of God were with them, supporting them. In other words, they were continuing to bring the word of the Lord to them that they may not be discouraged as they were when they were faced with opposition in chapter 4. But, but no sooner had the work begun again than Tatnai, who was an officer, official, a person official over the area, he began to inquire with the Jews, you know, what's going on? Now, and there's one sense you can understand. I mean, 15, 16 years have gone by, no work. And now all of a sudden, big stones are being moved and big timbers are being moved. And you're thinking, are these people building a fortress? I mean, Darius had already encountered some rebellion against his rule. So in one sense, you could say, well, the guy's just curious. He's just doing his job. But, but as, you, as, as you look at this, he, he, he came to them and he asked him, he said, who gave you permission to do this? And then he took the names of the leaders. We see that in chapter 5, verses 3 and 4. And then he wrote a letter to Darius, the, the, the current Persian king. Uh, and that letter is included in chapter 5, verses 6 through 17. But he's not just merely inquiring about the situation and asking for answers. You get the sense that he really is working to stop this work. That he, he that Tatnai really is in opposition to this work and and that's what we see in chapter 6 as Darius writes back to Tatnai and he says at the end of verse, verse 6 keep away 
Let the work of this house of God alone. In other words, even Darius recognized he was really trying to stop the work of the Lord. And he was telling him, hands off, don't do that. And so Ezra chapter 5 closes with the work of God sort of hanging in the balance. It wasn't that the work wasn't going on. We see in chapter 5 verse 5 that the people kept working on the temple. But as they did so, they did so under the uncertainty of what, how Darius would answer. Or even if he would answer and then what backlash would there be upon him? Now, as we, we come to that part of the account, we probably don't feel the suspense that's there, right? And, and part of that is we know the answer. We know the temple's going to be built in chapter 6. So, yeah, like what tension is there, right? I think the other reason why we don't feel that tension is it's not happening to us. I mean, there's been plenty of times, as there not, in our lives. I mean, how many times... Does God test our faith in putting us in uncertain circumstances much like these Jews? Where, where we are tempted to, to, to try to seek to find our own path forward because we cry out to God and He doesn't answer us. And He has a sort of in this holding pattern. And we're, so what we do is we're like, okay, Lord, if you won't work, I will work. And we try to seek to get rid of the obstacles that are in our way. And we seek to resolve the circumstances in our lives, our own certain our own satisfaction because God appears to be silent and he keeps us in that holding pattern. And to do nothing does not seem appropriate to us. At least it doesn't seem to be an appropriate option. And so what do we do? We, we wrestle and we, we, we fight and we try to make things work out our way and God continues to, to work and to keep us at bay. And so we get anxious and we worry and maybe we try to take matters into our own hands like Abram and Sarai when they were promised a son and yet they were too old to have a son. And so Sarai gave her husband, her, her maidservant, Hagar, as his wife so that she could bear the child. And God said, that's not my plan. You're trying to make this happen. Just wait. Just trust my plan. You see, in those times, God just wants us to wait and to cry out to Him, trusting that, that He sees our needs. I mean, look at verse chapter 5, verse 5. Uh, we see here that Ezra mentions that the eye of the Lord is on His people. You know, and, and we want to know that, that God sees us where we're at. He sees our need, but also that He loves us enough to act on our behalf to provide and to protect us. Matthew Henry, in his commentary on this chapter, he says, as for God, his work is perfect. Now we know that. God's work is perfect. The gospel church, that spiritual temple, is long in the building. In other words, it's taking God a while to put his church together, right? He's been doing this for centuries as he's been bringing people into his church and he will continue to gather the elect into his church. And it's going to take a while, but Matthew Henry goes on and says, but it will be finished at last when that, the mystical body is completed. Every believer is a living temple building up himself in his most holy faith. But Matthew Henry goes on as he talks about that work that God is doing in building his church. He says, but much opposition is given to this work by Satan and by our own corruptions. So we are being pressured both outside from Satan and the world. 
but also inward from our own temptations and the remainder of our flesh. So we trifle, Henry says, and proceed in it with many stops and pauses. In other words, we go forward, we take three steps forward and two steps backwards in our Christian walk, you know, we're, we're like the exiles. We go, we're zealous, we build the altar, we lay the foundation. Nothing can stop us. And then we get discouraged. And 16 years go by. And then God has to bring us back on track. And that's the Christian life, is it not? Those sort of those spurts, those starts, those stops, those struggles. But Matthew Henry goes on and he goes, But he that has begun a good work will see it performed and will bring forth judgment unto victory. And spirits of just men will be made perfect. And we know that to some degree. But sometimes as we're living life, as we're encountering those oppositions and those difficulties, it's hard for us to keep that in mind. And so in those times of opposition, what is it that we need to keep in mind? Well, first of all, let me suggest to you that God's people benefit from His provision. That God's people benefit from His provision. Darius didn't delay responding to the, the governor. He decreed that a search would be made. And it was. And Cyrus's decree was found in Ecbatana, which was where Cyrus held his court. Oftentimes it was also a climate that was very good in terms of storing documents and stu stuff. But what's so amazing is, is that one pagan king would honor the word of another pagan king, even enforcing Cyrus's decree. Darius didn't have to do that, but he did. And I want you to note the things that Darius decreed. Now, here you are, you're exiles in the land, you're building this temple, you've done nothing but face opposition, it just seems like everything is against you, and then all of a sudden you hear this decree from the king that says this, Darius made sure the Jews were given full freedom to rebuild the temple. Look at verse 7. Let the work on this house of God alone let the governor of the Jews and the elders of the Jews rebuild this house of God on site. Right there, they're given protection by the secular king. All the opposition that they've been encountering now immediately goes away. Then second, Darius funds the entire project with the royal revenues, even down to the very sacrifices that are made in verses 8 and 9. Uh, he said, the cost is to be paid to these men in full and without delay from the royal revenue. Verse 9, And whatever is needed, bulls, rams, sheep, for burnt offerings to the God of the heavens, even down to the salt and the wheat and all that stuff, he says, Let that be given to them day by day without fail. And so God not only gives protection, but God gives his people provision to do the work that he's called them to do. Uh, this for most of us is probably reminiscent of, of what happened in Egypt when God brought his people out of Egypt. They were in exile there and God, when he delivered them, said to them, turn to your neighbor and ask him for stuff. And guess what? The Egyptians gave it to him. Here, you want my money? Here's my money. Here's my clothes. Here's my fine linen and whatever. And the Lord used those things, not just for the personal benefit of the Israelites, but even as gifts that were offered for the building of the tabernacle when the time came as well. And so God gives us provision for his people. But third, Darius decreed that anyone who interfered with the building of God's house would be killed on a beam for his own house. Now this is a little gruesome, okay? But also I make a decree that if anyone alerts the, uh, alters this edict, a beam shall be pulled out of this house 
and he shall be impaled on it, and his house shall be made a dunghill. Now that's pretty strong. That's sort of like taking a gun to a knife fight, isn't it? You know, you're just like, that's powerful. But, you know, he's just like, I am serious. Nobody needs to get in the way of this. And then he even goes on and says, May the God who has caused his name to dwell there overthrow any king or people who shall put out a hand to alter this. Fourth, oh wait, excuse me, before I leave that point, at the end of verse 12, he, he, he mentions a phrase that actually will be repeated a number of times here. He said, let it be done with all diligence. In other words, not only is it to be done and no one's to stand against this, this is to be done quickly. And, and that's really sort of the fourth point. The governor of the province responded quickly and favorably. We read again in verse 13 uh, that then according to the word sent by Darius the king, Tatnai the governor of the province beyond the river, Shethar Bozani and their associates did with all diligence what Darius the king had ordered. And this house was finished on the third day of the month of Adar in the sixth year of the reign of Darius the king. You, what you see here is, is that he's telling them to do this quickly, and they did. But it's because God took the enemies of his people and he made them their advocate. He, he made them their support. Uh, you know, it's, it's a, it sort of reminded me of Esther. I, I read through Esther not too long ago, and it just struck me again in Esther 5 and 6 how Haman had planned to kill Mordecai. He just hated this man because he would not bow down and worship him. Talking about an ego. But anyway, he was going to hang him on the gallows. And so he was coming to, to get the king's permission to do this. And the king instead forced uh, Haman to bless Malachi and take him through the city and say, Look at this great man! Which you can just imagine how difficult that was for, for Haman to do. You see, we see in these things that Darius did the providence of God, the protection of God, and the provision of God. Now, let me just, maybe I, I'm going to use that word providence quite a bit. So let me just take a moment. And kids, if I ask you what are God's works of providence, you may be able to answer me and say, well, Pastor Rick, God's works of providence are His most holy, wise, and powerful, preserving and governing all his creatures and all their actions. In other words, providence is God's invisible hand at work in the affairs of mankind, in the way that God preserves and he governs everything that he has made and their actions. Now, that's what God is doing here. Now, you may have heard the saying that some things appear too good to be true. Well, that's, I'm sure, what Darius's decree was to the Jews as they heard this, like, whoa, we were just hoping he'd say, yeah, keep going, guys. You know, but look at what he's doing. Uh, it, it just appeared to be too good to be true. This wave of opposition now becomes a wave of support and encouragement. It, it sort of reminds me of the line of William Cowper. Uh, he's a, a hymn writer. Uh, he's, I, um, I can't think of the specific hymns that he's written off the top of my head, but he said, We ought not to allow frowning providences to hide God's smiling face. Let me say that again. I would encourage you to write this down. We ought not to allow frowning providences 
to hide God's smiling face. We ought not to allow frowning providences to hide God's smiling face. You see, Israel had experienced what appears to be frowning providences for many years as the local people oppressed them. And now God turns that frowning providence in such a way that they may see behind it and actually see God's smiling face. As God works through his people, the church, and and brothers and sisters, when we talk about the church, it's the church isn't just some institution out there. You're the church. So as he's working in your lives, as he's working through your households, as he's working through our local body together, as he's working through the church at large, we will face opposition. But God doesn't leave us alone. He gives us his word, as we saw in Ezra chapter 5. God knows that our experience in in difficult times is inadequate to see how he and his providence is at work in the heavenly. Right? We can't see that. As we're going through the, the dark, hard providences of life, we don't look and say, oh, I see how God's at work. We're just so focused, just like the exiles were, on the local people as they were seeking to discourage them. And we can become discouraged. And so God, out of his love for his people, says, let me give you my word. Because what my word does is it gives you a heavenly perspective of what is actually happening in your life from what I'm doing as your God. Now, that doesn't mean that God gives us a detailed plan of his work. He doesn't spell out every detail of what he's doing in our lives. Rather, instead, he reminds us of his character and his will and his purpose and his promises which then allows us to grow in faith because if we had any detail if we had every detail we wouldn't have to trust in him but because we don't know all the detail we do have to trust in him but at the same time as we're trusting in him it reminds us of his trustworthiness and how we can rest in him even when the circumstances of life are not resolved now, I'm sure you could probably relate to a story that I, I read this week of a college professor who was speaking to one of his students, and he was reflect, and the student was sort of reflecting on the difficulty of not always knowing God's ways, right? It's, that's hard sometimes when you don't know what God is doing. And so the student used this illustration. He goes, when I drive in a car, he goes, I like to have my GPS mounted right up there on my dash. He says, so that I can tell where I'm at, I can tell where I'm going, and I can tell you how I'm going to get there. He goes, what I really hate is when I have a friend or a family member who's sitting in the passenger seat, and they're holding the GPS, and they're just telling me turn by turn. I don't like that, he says. Now, I could relate to that, by the way, you know, and maybe most of you too can as well. But he said, he, he said the point he made was this. He said he knows that he is to trust in God's providence but he wishes he could see the map that details the coordinates of his life. And isn't that where most of us live? We just want to know where God's taking us. And just the fact that he's not telling us, and sometimes those turns, there are years that happen between turns. And we're waiting, and we're waiting, and we're waiting, and we don't know what God is doing, but he's calling us to trust him. 
And as God's people rest on the promises of his word, they can wait with the peace that passes all understanding. And they can cast on him the burden of their anxiety and their worry because that temptation will come. We want to know. We want things to be resolved. Maybe there are things with our loved ones and we care so much for them. And Lord, you're not acting. And so we become anxious and we worry. But we can cast that worry upon him because it is he who is working all things according to the counsel of his will. Ephesians 1.11 It is his providence at work. And in this case, it involved the heart of a pagan king. And we know what Proverbs 21.1 says. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. So even those that are powerful, even those that are leading over us, God is the one who directs their hearts. And I know that we need to hear this, brothers and sisters. I know that there are many that are concerned about the direction of our nation today. And our temptation can be to look to the next election and say, Oh God, maybe you'll give us a better candidate that can turn things around. And that's where our hope is. But as God's people, we must look past the circumstances we find ourselves in and even the players within those circumstances to the God who sovereignly controls the circumstances in such a way as to work them according to the counsel of His will. To know that we are right where we need to be as a country in the eyes of God and He is at work and we can trust Him. I'm not saying that God is pleased with everything that, that rulers like Darius and, and others do, but God is working everything out according to the counsel of His plan. God directs the heart of the rulers. Let us not fear, but pray to the one who turns the heart of the ruler wherever He will be. The second thing I want us to see is that God's people prosper under His hand. God's people prosper under His hand. He, he has turned a frowning providence into a credible, clear smile. The providence that once appeared to be against Israel now appears to be for them. And so the, the Jews flourished. Look at verse 14. The Jews flourished under the prophets and, and the preaching of the word of God. The kings and the governor's support was an encouragement to them. But most importantly, they were encouraged and they flourished under the God who had decreed it to happen at this time in redemptive history. The same God who would also decree the building of Jerusalem's wall that would take place many years later under the reign of King Artaxerxes. Look at verse 14, the end. They finished their building by decree of the God of Israel and by the decree of Cyrus and Darius and Artaxerxes, king of Persia. You see, all of these things were genuine decrees of these kings, but behind all of these human decrees was the decree of God. You know, it's, that's just a, a great example of first and secondary causes, as the confession talks about. And that's a sermon in and of itself, so we're going to resist that temptation. But, you know, it's a glorious thing to know that God is the first cause and, and, and stuff. Okay, well anyway, it's, so it's taken... Four years from the time that Haggai preached to the people to repent and begin the rebuilding the wall until it was completed. It's 20 years since Cyrus had decreed it and 70 years since the destruction of the first temple by the Babylonians. Uh, God has finally, through his people, completed the work and then they began to worship according to the book of the law of Moses. 
as we see in verse 16. Now, if you've read the book of Chronicles or Kings, uh, you'll notice that the number of sacrifices here in Ezra uh, pales in comparison to the offerings at the dedication of the first temple. In the same way that the second temple was much smaller, so the sacrifices were much less as well. But instead of comparing the numbers, the exiles heeded the Lord's word through Zechariah that said to not despise the day of small things, but instead to rejoice at what God has done with the remnant of his returned exiles. And so they didn't focus on what they were missing. Instead, they took joy in what God had given to them. Joy, uh, a celebration of joy. Joy because the temple was finally constructed. Joy because... He had turned the hearts of their enemies to their favor. Uh, joy because they were back in the promised land. Joy because the eye of God was upon them. But also if you look at verse 17, joy because God is the one who forgives sins. And we read, they offered at the dedication of this house of God 100 bulls, 200 rams, 400 lambs, and as a sin offering for all Israel, 12 male goats, according to the number of the tribes of Israel. Now, if you recall at the beginning of Ezra, there were only, there's only a few tribes that are represented here amongst these exiles. But they knew that Israel, all the tribes were God's people. And so they offered sacrifices on behalf of all of Israel because there were so many sins against God that needed to be forgiven. Israel was a deeply sinful people, and they knew that. And they knew that that's exactly why they were in exile. And even coming back, they see their sins and their weaknesses, even being discouraged from the work of God for 16 years, and then becoming focused upon themselves rather than the Lord's work. But God is gracious. And so while there's much to celebrate, there's also the reality of their sin that needs to be dealt with. And so that's why they lead their celebration with a sin offering for all of Israel. So the people in repentance return to the Lord. And they return, as it says here, to the book of Moses in the service of God at Jerusalem. You see, rather than following their own desires and the ways of their own hearts as their fathers did, uh, the people instead turned to God's word and what he said and what he prescribed. And if, if you watch... Many of the sins that earlier Israel had committed in terms of, like I said, worshiping as the local people did and worshiping in ways that were not pure as God had laid out for them, these people were very careful to keep. And notice that before there is corporate celebration, there is repentance of sin. Because the Bible says that the wages of sin is death, right? And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And so the people do not celebrate the building of the temple. That's, that's not enough. They, they must also celebrate God's goodness with the Passover. And that's the third point. God's people celebrate His goodness. God's people celebrate His goodness. It's very fitting that this section of the book ends with a joyful celebration of the Passover. Because that was in one sense the heart of Israel's life. And a continual reminder of God's covenant mercies to His people. And so the Passover begins with the priests purifying themselves in verse 20. And then we read uh, in verse 20, So they slaughtered the Passover lamb for all the returned exiles, for their fellow priests, 
and for themselves. Now notice that the lamb is singular, one Passover lamb for all the people. But notice who eats of it. It was eaten by the people of Israel, verse 21, it was eaten by the people of Israel who had returned from exile and also by everyone who had joined them and separated himself from the uncleanness of the peoples of the land to worship the God of Israel. In other words, there were people, these local people, maybe at one time who were even seeking to oppose them, who saw the work of God, who saw God working in the midst of His people, and they believed. They believed once again in Yahweh. They turned from their sins, and they sought to follow Him. A lot like Ruth did, a Moabitess, who forsook her people and went and lived in Israel and worshipped the Lord our God, even though she was a Gentile. Or, or Rahab, the prostitute who also had heard of the things of the Lord and had sought to help Israel that they might conquer Jericho and she followed the Lord. So here our Jew and Gentile come together to celebrate the Passover lamb that was given for God's people. And it said the feast lasted seven days. It says, and they kept the feast of unleavened bread seven days. But notice the language in verse 22. They celebrated seven days, but it says with joy, for the Lord had made them joyful. This was, wasn't just emotions, you know, that, oh, I just feel good about what's happening. Oh, this is so great. You know, but they actually saw the hand of God at work. And there was joy that was stirred up in their heart, and they rejoiced in Him. And they had many reasons to be joyful, but it said, and because He had turned the heart of the king of Assyria to them, so that He aided them in the work of the house of God, the God of Israel. And so God turned the tide of opposition into a wave of support. Behind this frowning providence, the people of Israel saw God's smiling face. But the sad part about Ezra and Nehemiah is that the smile doesn't last forever. Because God's people would need a new heart because they would sin against the Lord just like their forefathers did. And even though the Passover celebrated what God had done in the past and the Passover celebrated what God was doing in the present, you know, just they had to be thinking as they were celebrating the Passover, wow, this is sort of like when God brought our people out of Egypt, you know, and he delivered them out of exile and then he gave them the Passover. In the same way, we've come out of exile and now we get to celebrate the Passover that we haven't celebrated for decades because the temple has not been here. And as we read the scripture, we see that the Passover also points to what God is doing in the future. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 4 says, For it is impossible. It's not that it's not likely. It's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away the sins. That's to take away sins. And so, here we know from scripture that there is no forgiveness of sins without the shedding of blood, and yet bulls and goats are, are not enough. E even the blood of, this, of Israel's Passover lamb on that day could not truly satisfy for sins. It could only atone. And so for these frowning providence to be in turn into an everlasting smile upon the face of God, God would have to do away with these sacrifices, and He would even have to do away with this rebuilt temple. God would have to turn His smiling face away from His only begotten Son who would become the true Passover Lamb and who would die upon the cross for the sins of His people and give them 
a new heart. And that's where this passage is taking us, brothers and sisters, to a better Passover lamb, to a better temple, to an everlasting smile on the face of God towards his people. And this happens in Jesus, who is God's Passover lamb. It is his flesh and blood that becomes our bread and wine at the Lord's Supper. It is Christ who is the new and true temple. We see that in John chapter 2 when Jesus says, destroy, right? Destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. And he's speaking of his own body. You see, our celebration is an even greater celebration than that of the exiles on that day in March of the year 516. Because we understand that reality. And we look forward to the reality that we will experience in heaven when we will get to eat the, 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 um, the, lamb, the, the feast of the Lamb with Christ in, in, in heaven. And, and even as we get to see the temple, and you say, well, wait, Pastor Rick. In Revelation, it says there is no temple. That's true. Revelation 21, 22 said, And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. You see, it's in that day that we will get to fellowship with Him uh, face to face. So the temple built in the days of Ezra was a smiling providence, but it was not a temple or a ministry that would last. But brothers and sisters, for those that have faith in Jesus Christ, you have received a temple and a ministry that does. One that has dealt with your sin in the past. One that continues to deal with your sin in the future or in the present. And one that covers your sins in the future. And if God was pleased to turn his hard providence to reveal his smiling face, how much more does God smile on you than he did upon Israel? You see, God smiles on you through the face of his son. And that smile does not fade. Never again will God turn his face from his beloved. Never again will the wrath of God be poured out like it was on Jesus for those that are his children. He will never cease to smile on you. Even when you walk outside and you see the clouds of hard providence forming in your life, his loving smile on his people will never fade. And that's what Paul was talking about in Romans chapter 8. He said, he, Romans 8, 32, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things. You see, even behind those dark clouds of providence is God's smiling face. And this is true for all who have faith in Christ. But if you're here today and you're outside of Jesus and you're not trusting in Him, then it's not God's smile that waits you, but His everlasting frown, His everlasting judgment and wrath that will be poured out upon you. But if you turn to Him in faith, then you will have the smile of God. And for all eternity, God will smile on you. This morning, as, as we sort of come to a close, I, I want to just encourage you to ask yourself, how do you read God's frowning providences in your life? When those hard times come, like they did with Israel, where they were opposed and they were in those moments of waiting. They wanted the GPS where they knew the whole plan, but they were just given a turn-by-turn -turn thing. When those things happen in your life, how do you view that? 
Do they eclipse for you a smiling God whose countenance is warm and whose love is never ending? Do God's hard providences hide God's smiling face from you? Or, when you see the clouds of God's hard providence, do you remember that there is also God's smiling face? He loves you. Let me just close with these words from the hymn, How Firm a Foundation, that states it so well. It says, What more can he say than to you he has said, to you who for refuge to Jesus have fled? Let's bow our heads and meditate upon the word of the Lord that was spoken this morning. We thank you, O God, that even in the midst of the opposition and, and the trials and the struggles, the temptations that, that we encounter as your people, as you work through your church, God, to accomplish your purposes and your will. We pray, Lord, that we might remember these things, that we might behold the face of our God and, and who he is and, and how his smile is upon us. Oh God, encourage us this morning that are struggling, especially those, Lord, who have been in the battle for a long time. God, maybe those that it's been decades since there's been another turn, and they've been waiting, and they've been crying, and they've been praying to you, oh Lord. Oh God, would you strengthen them this morning. Father, I would pray as well, Lord, for those who do not know you, that they would cease to, to be trying to, to wrestle and to, to figure out their lives themselves and to try to become the king of their own destiny but may they bow at the feet of the king of kings and the lord of lords the one and only who can save them from their sins and give them new hearts new lives lives lord where you smile upon them oh we thank you oh god for your wonderful grace may we never forget these things but may it be upon our hearts as we leave this place and as we live our lives this week Please bring these things to our minds much so that our voices might praise you. We ask these things in your name. Amen.